a powerful new look at Hurricane Katrina. Hello everybody and welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster, 17 years after Hurricane Katrina made landfall as a category five storm in the Gulf Coast, killing more than 1800 people and causing $125 billion in damages. There's a remarkable new documentary that is out. And this is a documentary that instead of just talking about the big picture mainstream headlines, like I just said, it actually digs into some of the personal stories of some of the people who left New Orleans and never returned. They survived the storm, they left the Big Izzy, but they've decided in the past 17 years not to go back. It's a really gripping story. And here to talk about it is the award-winning producer and director, Renick Soholt. The documentary is called Forced Change. It has already aired at a lot of film festivals, won countless awards. It is now out for public release. Renick, first of all, thanks for joining us. There's been some focus through the years on the people who made it back to New Orleans. Why focus on the four people, and as you did in this film, who decided not to go back? Well, it was a, it was a long process, to be honest. It, it, it wasn't my intention at first to focus solely on people who left. I think at first I, I, I sort of was looking at the group of people that, that I was uh, uh, working with, and, and some had left and some had stayed. And, and, and it really, it was, it was pretty, within the first couple of years, which seems like a long time, but when you're making a doc, sometimes it's not, I realized that some of the, the the people that had left, there was a certain spark in them that I felt like uh, was worked better. And 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 then as time went on, and other docs started to come out. You know, Spike Lee put out his his uh, his documentary after a, a year, and Trouble the Water came out, and it just felt like you know what, this is something that people aren't looking at because they want to help New Orleans and focus on New Orleans, but there's this whole other group of people that are just kind of being left out and and are stuck somewhere else, you know, and and it and it also then after more storms hit, it just felt like you know what, this is something that's going to happen more and more, and it's important to uh, to shine a light on it. And that's why I think it's such a great and apt name, Forced Change, because this Katrina was one of the largest relocations in US history. But to your point, because of climate change, we can expect to see more and more of this. What are some of the lessons that you came away from in talking to the various people and in the, what, the 15 years that you spent putting to this documentary together? Yeah, it was it was 14, it was almost 15 years, took a few years to put it out. Lessons, I mean, um, Nobody escapes unscathed, I think is a big lesson. You know, I think um, some people you thought um, they're doing great, like they're doing better even. You know, some people sort of used it as a, as, as a, as a way to say, I'm gonna start over. But I think when you don't have a choice about where you live and you have to sort of snap your fingers and make it happen, there's trauma involved with that. And I think understanding people's uh, uh, trauma and the effect that it had on them when the control for their life was taken out from underneath them, uh, I think was a, a, a huge deal. And some characters didn't suffer until later. There was a, there was a, a suicide in, in the documentary. There was a, a woman who suffered from drug addiction. And there's just a lot of things that sort of came up as people looked back on their lives and, and, and sort of realized everything sort of moved off focus at that point, you know, and and their whole life has been about getting that back, you know. And I think it's also about home, you know. I think the lesson is that, um, you know, the place that you live is, has got a special place in in your heart, and, and New Orleans is a a really special special place, more special than maybe a lot of other places in in the states. And and that was something that was really evident by the people that that I focused on. 
Well, and I was gonna say, I, I was one of those sort of reporters who parachuted in right before the storm and went to Mississippi and spent a week in Mississippi and Biloxi and then spent a couple of weeks in New Orleans. And I was just, I mean, I was devastated and struck by seeing a, a major American city literally drown with most of its population leave. Half of the population ended up sort of going, uh, many of them not coming back. You actually lived in New Orleans. New Orleans was your home for a period of years before Katrina, right? It was, it was, I moved to New York in 2002. So a few years before Katrina. And so, so, so to be honest, everybody who I focused on were people that I knew, you know, I mean, I, I basically ended up renting a car in New York and driving down to New Orleans. I was there the day it opened back up to the city where it became an open city again, it was closed for a while. And um, that was in uh, uh, September. And and I just started filming, and and the reason I was able to gather stories was because I was just texting people saying, "Hey, where are you?" You know, and I just started following people into their homes, and so um, I feel like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily cast a documentary like that today, um, but I also think that the documentary has a certain amount of intimacy to it because uh, because I I knew everybody, and it was. A personal story. You know, when I started this, I wanted to make a story that people from New Orleans were proud of. And I felt like they always make fun of movies that are set in New Orleans because they always seem inauthentic. And I wanted to make something that like wasn't just people, wasn't carpetbagger-ish, you know, was more just like people people there would be would be proud of what was what was being told. The people that you spoke with along the way, um, how much do they actually draw a connection with climate change and what happened to them? Or was this still just such a personal upheaval that in some ways for the people who lived through it, it's hard to perhaps you know think in that bigger picture? Yeah, that was not on people's minds. I think survival was on people's minds. You know, a lot of people had kids. They were like, how are our kids gonna go to school? Schools are closed. What are we gonna do? And and I didn't really bring it, you know, I I um I I ended up in New Orleans because I was getting my master's in social work at Tulane, which I I was going to be a therapist, and I dropped out, and I ended up going to film school and 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 uh, uh, taking a different route. But I, I my focus is definitely psychological and people sort of like personal experiences. So I, I I definitely didn't bring it in, and nobody who I interviewed was like, you know, this is going to happen again. You know, people were just like surviving; they were just surviving. Yeah. And the character of New Orleans itself, uh, in terms of the city and what the city stands for now, a lot of people say, "Oh my goodness, this is the city that is the ultimate city standing for resilience." And yet, when you lose what a hundred thousand people in your population over the course of you know fifteen years, seventeen years, it feels like a certain texture to the city is is missing. Is that fair? There has been a lot of changes in New Orleans. I mean. Um, a lot of there's there's a lot of controversy over who's buying homes. Are people that are buying homes do they live in New Orleans? You know, people who maybe didn't care about New Orleans before Katrina became aware of New Orleans and started uh, uh, buying homes and and doing Airbnb. And there's whole neighborhoods that um, people don't live there anymore. You know, a certain amount of the population when it leaves, it sort of leaves that you know heartbeat. And I think New Orleans is always going to be New Orleans, but I do think it's gotten more expensive. It's gotten more visible, and because of that, you know, I think some people are seeing it from the outside versus it being such an authentic city that it was maybe before Katrina. I, I won't talk bad about it. I think it's still a, still a great place, but it's definitely like, you know, before I moved to New York, I almost bought a home in New Orleans, and I couldn't afford a home there now. So. <laughs> 
Um, without you know giving away too much of this sort of documentary, again, it follows, I guess, the four people who chose not to come back to New Orleans. Was there anything that surprised you as they told their stories about the past 17 years, first surviving the storm, then essentially establishing their new life someplace else? Surprised. Um, well, as I was saying before, you know, I think one of the things I thought was interesting is very early on, people were using this as like a fresh start, they would call it. You know, they were saying, we have this opportunity now, like we're we're getting some help from the government. We're able, we we don't we, this is something that like we're gonna try and like, you know, what is what is the like make turn lemons into lemonade, you know? But like I guess what surprised me was that it was very rarely that simple, you know, and no matter how much you 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 sort of make up your mind to start afresh. Um uh, it, you can't take that feeling of hopelessness away or helplessness from from being dislocated from where you're from, you know. And people kept talking about going back, but they didn't go back, you know. I would imagine that when you're from New Orleans, which has a special kind of identity and and you know the American sort of uh, you know sort of sense of self worth and culture and music. When you say, "Oh, I'm from New Orleans," and then your city gets devastated the way it does, I mean, it feels like, with all disrespect, with no disrespect to my home home state of Indiana, I think you know tornadoes blow in and destroy towns, and they just are rebuilding that sort of it. But New Orleans, New Orleans is different, and I wonder for the people who are from New Orleans if maybe that is sort of a special burden that they have had to sort of deal with through the years. For sure, for sure, it is. I, I knew early on that this wasn't a story about any old town. It was as, it was a story about a special place that had a special culture, a special cuisine, a special uh, identity. And because you leave that, it makes it even harder than you know Indiana or you know wherever, whatever city that that you could leave more more easily. And so I think, um, especially people who've been there for generations, you know. And that sense of community too, right? I mean, I think that comes out in some of the characters in the film that they just they realized when they left just how strong that community in New Orleans was for them. Yes, yeah. One of the characters, Lauren, mentions that it takes a village to raise a family, and he said he really felt that in New Orleans. And he said though they were safe, the kids were in school and they were doing okay, they were their own little island out in Texas, and they were just like they didn't have that community anymore, and that I think was a big loss. Was this a cathartic experience for you to put this together to tell the story of what happened to New Orleans through this documentary? Yes, for sure. It was a cathartic experience. It was it was a very personal experience. You know, there was no part of it in me that ever thought that this day would actually come out. That maybe it would come out. It was like I was just driven to do it. I was driven to do it, and I uh, uh, felt like it was something that I had to do because I knew people who had a story that needed to be told and. Um, so, so it was it was very cathartic in that way. And the the reaction from all the film festivals has been spectacular, right? And this is at a time when you know HBO's got their doc, and you mentioned Spike Lee, but I mean the film festivals seem to to love this. So, how are you feeling about that? I mean, I think it's great. You know, I think that it was really nerve wracking early on when all these films came out with you know people who had access to funds. You know, it's it's a Independent film is a very expensive endeavor, and it takes a long time, you know. And when you're doing it yourself, even though I've been a television producer for 20 years, it is a very difficult endeavor. And and I, I the first festival it played at, it won best feature documentary in New York City. And from that point on, it's just won tons of awards. And I I've, I've just been you know grateful to get it out there. 
Well, congratulations on this remarkable documentary. It is now out, it is called Force Change. The award-winning producer, director, Renick Sohold put this together over a period of 14 years. A remarkable story, not just about the impact of Hurricane Katrina on some of the residents of New Orleans, but also the impact of climate change and what many Americans could be facing in the years to come. Renick, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it and good luck to you. Thank you, David, thank you for having yeah. me. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. The US Department of Justice has begun a criminal grand jury investigation of former President Donald Trump connected to the January 6th insurrection and riot. There have been witnesses in recent days who have appeared before the grand jury. It appears as if prosecutors are trying to reconstruct some of the conversations that President Trump had with his aides both in December 2020 and into January 2021. In addition, text messages and phone records have been subpoenaed and produced for the grand jury. And here to talk about all of this is Hugo Lowell. He is the congressional reporter for The Guardian and has been covering this investigation. Hugo, thanks for joining us. First of all, it does seem like there was so much anticipation about when would the Justice Department begin its investigation. Now it's clear that they have. How far along are they? Well, I think we should um, we should kind of check in on the DOJ and exactly what they're doing. I mean, what we learned uh, last week was that the Justice Department started asking top Trump administration officials, uh, Mark Shaw and Greg Jacob, who are senior aides to the vice president, about their communications with Donald Trump with respect to overturning the election, the fake elector scheme, and uh, obstructing the certification of uh, Joe Biden's election win. That in and of itself, I think we should be careful, doesn't necessarily mean that the DOJ has opened a criminal investigation into Trump. But I think what we can conclude is that the DOJ is very much focused on Trump's role in January 6th. And so even though we might not say specifically that DOJ is open to criminal investigation, the net effect of this is the same. And I think the fact that we are moving into the inner circle of the vice president's top aides means that this investigation is very much underway. The Congressional Special Committee that has been investigating January 6th, for a while it looked as if as if they were gonna be providing all of their materials to the Department of Justice, to transcripts. How does that relationship stand between the Congressional Committee and what the Department of Justice is seeking to do? Well, look, these are two separate investigations and there has to be a firewall between Congress and DOJ. That's just how these investigations work. Uh, but I think you know the fact that the select committee is now turning over around 20 transcripts, that's what the chairman Benny Thompson told reporters last week, um, that, they're, that they're turning these transcripts over means that the congressional committee is now actively helping the Justice Department investigation. And I think this is really significant because it allows the DOJ to cross-reference what these witnesses in the grand jury investigations are telling them with what those same witnesses told the select committee. So if there's any sort of potential perjury going on, that would be where they can find that. But it also gives them some background and it gives them the context and the earlier work that the select committee has done because they have focused on two very different things. The select committee for a very long time has been focused on Trump's role and the political role in January 6th, whereas the Justice Department has started from the bottom up. They've been going from the rioters and the people that stormed the Capitol and seeing if there are any connections back to Trump. So it sounds like this is now where we're gonna triangulate and these two investigations line to each other. And what's what, more than 700 people have been charged with various sort of crimes associated with the Department of Justice investigation, is that correct? Yeah, that's roughly correct. I mean, it's a, it's a moving target. I think every day the FBI is identifying new people who stormed the Capitol. 
Um, they're trying to see if previous indictments can be upgraded. I mean, today we saw the trial of uh, Guy Reffitt, a, uh, a rioter who stormed the Capitol. And the DOJ wanted to add new charges onto his uh, original uh, indictment. They wanted to add a terrorism enhancement. Now, that didn't pass master uh, before a federal judge today. But uh, the Justice Department is continuing to identify the people and uh, charge people who stormed that Capitol. There's been some debate within the January 6th Special Select Committee about whether at the end of their work, whether they would produce a criminal referral, some recommendations to the Department of Justice based on their findings, based on their testimony and hearings. Has that been resolved? Is there any sort of unity on the committee as far as what they will tell to the Justice Department at the end of this? Look, so, so the debate about criminal referrals comes down to what can the committee actually do. There's no, there's no document, or there's no form they can download from the DOJ's website to say, yes, we are formally uh, making a criminal referral to you guys. Please open a criminal investigation. This is not how this process works. Um, basically, what they do is they're going to collect all of the evidence, put it into a packet and send it over to DOJ and say, look, there's a cover letter. And the cover letter, they might say, we think there's potential crimes here committed by the president. Our recommendation is that you investigate. Now, whether or not the committee does that, you know, we've already discussed that the DOJ is already investigating Trump's role in January 6th. So I think there is a debate still. It's definitely not resolved inside the select committee as to whether they want to actually make those statements in a cover letter. Uh, but certainly, I think either way, uh, this all goes back to Trump and the select committee's work can only bolster the uh, Justice Department's message. The Department of Justice under its own guidelines has an obligation when dealing with public officials to essentially open a dialogue before there are any sort of formal steps, uh, presentations to a grand jury that are taken. Do you know if there's been any dialogue between the Department of Justice and Donald Trump or his lawyers regarding what they may be asking for, where this may be headed? Has there been any sort of uh, exchanges of information, even pleasantries between DOJ and Donald Trump? It's not entirely clear, and I think you know part of that is always going to be the former president is never going to want to announce he's he's under criminal investigation until he has no choice but to do so. And same goes for those lawyers. I think the important point to note with the lawyers is a lot of his top legal advisors, people like John Eastman who authored the coup memo, uh, people like Boris Epstein who was instrumental in putting together the fake elector scheme. You know these guys are the targets, or it appears to be the targets of these grand jury investigations. You don't go and talk to the targets of an investigation until you have all the other evidence from all the other fact witnesses, and then you're almost ready to charge. And so I think that point is coming closer and closer. It doesn't sound like though that there's been any grand jury subpoenas to either the former president or his top lawyers, but there have been subpoenas to people right below them. And I think that's a very good indication of where, where the criminal investigation goes next. There was once a time with the Department of Justice when dealing with a public official who was seeking election or seeking re-election that they would go to that public official and say, look, here's the indictment. Here's the prosecution memo outlining all the charges we might bring against you. Let's cut a deal and one of the options might be you choose, you either step down from office or don't run for re-election and that will be part of the arrangement. There seems to be this sort of speculation across the United States that maybe the DOJ can cut a deal with Donald Trump and say, look, if you promise you will not run for re-election in 2024, we will soften up whatever indictment we might be considering of you. Is that realistic? Uh, not really, I don't think so. It's not typically how the DOJ operates. I mean, the DOJ, especially with this administration, especially with this uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, is really trying to stay out of politics. That'd be a very overt political move for DOJ to make, and I really don't see that happening. I think you know, typically when these sort of the plea deals are made, the way it works is that the department typically gets uh, targets and witnesses to plead guilty first, and once they've pled guilty. Then they say, okay, well, now that you've admitted your guilt, we will basically uh, we will basically make sure 
that you have a lesser sentence uh, through a deal with the prosecutor. Uh, that's really how it goes. It's not typically the, the case that they ask uh, former or next or soon to be presidential candidates not to run for office. I'm gonna show my age here in this next question. And that is back in the Iran-Contra investigation, what, 30 years ago, a number of the people who appeared before Congress, Oliver North and others, they were able to get out of their Department of Justice indictments or some of the charges because they were able to claim that it had been tainted, that the Department of Justice prosecution had been tainted by how high profile and public the congressional hearings had been. And so for a while, for many years, it seemed as if the Department of Justice would always go first in a criminal investigation and Congress would defer and wait for the DOJ to you know, finish up its investigation. Or like in the Whitewater hearings, they would focus on areas that DOJ was not focused on. Is there some fear either in the Congressional Committee or perhaps even in the Department of Justice that things have been sort of so commingled again that anybody who might, might get indicted by the Department of Justice could essentially make that same defense and say, no, this is tainted by what's, what Congress has already done? I think there was a fear of that towards the start of the investigation. I think neither the members nor the select committee council that have been working on this investigation now believe that to be the case. I think you know with previous investigations, like as you say, Iran Contra, there was it all got complicated a little bit because some of these ministers were granted uh, testimonial immunity by Congress, which DOJ found to uh, found difficult to get around. Um, this is not the case in this investigation. No one to date has. As far as we are aware, has been offered uh, testimonial immunity by Congress or by DOJ. And so there's no wrinkle here. The fact of the matter is when these cases get to the Justice Department uh, and if they go to trial, um, they're gonna have to impanel a grand jury. And what we saw in Bannon's contempt of Congress trial, this was really interesting. You know, They were able pretty quickly, in fact, to impanel a what, what both sides considered to be a fair uh, grand jury that had only limited, if not no knowledge of uh, the January 6th investigations or the January 6th hearings. So I think actually all of those fears are uh, pretty much abated. As far as the January 6th hearings are going in Congress, where are they going? I mean, they've taken something of a break now. Uh, it seemed like that perhaps they had, they, you know, they had put some incredible witnesses and testimony together. What's left? Where does the committee go now? Yeah, so when I talk to members on the committee, the way they describe it to me is like, look, these hearings these last two months have really been like insurrection 101, a bit of a primer, a bit of an entry level explanation for the American public to understand all the multifaceted schemes that the former president was running as he tried to return himself to office. The idea with the rest of the hearings is, you know, the committee is going to issue an interim report at some point in September. We think it's going to be mid-September. And around the issuance of that report, the committee will hold a series of hearings examining what's in the report, as well as kind of new details that they have learned in the month of August when they're working pretty hard. In fact, you know, one of the one of the councils told me that the month of August may be the most busy investigative month for them to date. And remember, this this investigation's already been continuing for 11 months. So I think that's quite a statement. And then afterwards, they want to hold a final set of hearings around the issue issuance of a final report, which could bump really into the midterms. This could come November, December. So I think there's still quite a ways ahead for this committee to go. And it sounds like a number of people have stepped forward based on the hearings and based on the testimony of some of the folks who decided to participate. Yeah, look, I think um, you know Liz Cheney, the, the panel's vice chair, said at one of the hearings that the dam is beginning to break and that uh, they are able to get through to Trump's aides, people close to the former president, people close to the age of the former president. Uh, and I think this is really significant. I think if you see how Cassie Hutchinson testified, you see how Sarah Matthews testified. Uh, you know, these were two top-level Trump aides who you know braved the, the the cameras and the lights and went before the committee to tell their story. And I think that really emboldened people, and they looked. 
that Cassie Hutchinson and Sarah Matthews can say, if they can do that well, I think we can do that as well. And so it's certainly there does seem to be an uptick uh, in the number of our witnesses coming through the committee. And much awareness on the committee in terms of the November elections and the impact that they may have? The only thing that they say is, look, if Trump's allies and Trump hadn't been trying to stymie the investigation for the first four months of it when, when we started last year, we might already be done. So if these investigations run into the midterms and beyond, well, you know, it's only Trump who has himself to blame. Remarkable stuff, and we'll see. I mean, the Department of Justice again. The headline is the Department of Justice has been taking some testimony and getting transcripts from the January 6th committee, and has tried to start presenting some information to a grand jury. And where this leads, we will we will see what happens in the next couple of weeks and months. Hugo Lowell, he's a congressional reporter for the Guardian, covering all of this. Hugo, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Hamid. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, and the entire team at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.